so many pastors are worried about what's going on in our own four walls and really it's not about us is it it's not about us as a church it's about the kingdom of God and what's been exciting about that is just seeing our people being willing to help in other circumstances and in certain situations where we can be a blessing and encouragement to others and um for today, uh, they asked if Ben would lead worship there because they still don't have a worship leader. And uh, we've been blessed with several musicians, right? And uh, God's been good to us, but it's nice to be able to share it too once in a while and encourage them. So anyway, it's been a blessing. And so anyway, if you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Mark. And I hate this because when I don't do it, everyone yells at me because I didn't do it. So I'm going to go ahead and get back to doing it. There we go. If I can remember how to, there it goes. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 19. And Jesus chooses the 12. And just by way of review... In our last sermon two weeks ago from the book of Mark, we saw Jesus preach to the multitude on the seashore. And uh, probably one of the most interesting facets of that story is that people followed him literally from every direction. We saw that they, people came from the south, the north, the east, the west, literally from every direction. They followed him to the point where he had really no place to hide, no place to go to retreat. Uh, though he tried, people would keep searching him out till they found him. And we've said that some followed because they heard of what Jesus had done and what he could do. And yet others followed him because of the miracles that they might actually witness. And still others followed him because they needed Jesus to do something in their lives. And we ended the message with a couple of questions. And the first one is, what lessons can we learn from the text of the scripture? What questions can we ask ourselves upon hearing this story? And we came up with a couple of them. Number one, are you, are we, am I still excited about following Jesus? Are you still excited about that? If not, why? We serve an incredibly awesome, powerful God. <coughs> I've witnessed over the years, maybe you have too, but people who were excited at one point or another in their life because they were following Christ. And for whatever reasons, for whatever circumstances, whether it be bitterness or just distance that they feel because they don't sense God's presence or maybe because of sin in their lives or a host of other reasons, they're not as excited anymore. They go to church, might even help out with some projects, but they just show up. Maybe it's because it's what they're supposed to do in their mind. But are you still excited about following Jesus? Are you still thrilled about the fact that he saved your soul? If you've ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, he uses a picture of how we're just being held out over a flame, fire, hell, and God in his grace and his mercy puts us on solid rock, so to speak. Isn't that amazing that God would do that for you and I? amazing are you still excited and the second question is why do you why do I 
Why do we follow Jesus? Why do we? What's our motive? Do we love him because he first loved us, as it states in 1 John 4, 19? Have we considered the fact in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Aren't you glad that God didn't say, clean up your whole life and then I'll, maybe I'll deal with you? Who of us would even know Jesus in that circumstance? None of us. Because you can't be good enough. There's nothing you can do in and of yourselves to save yourself. That's why he says, in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. His one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Are you still excited to be a child of God? Hopefully we are. Hopefully it never becomes... Oh well, I'm on my way to heaven. Well, the time had come for Jesus to choose the men who would carry on the ministry that his father had given him. And as we look at this next text of scripture, we'll see that Jesus is choosing the 12 disciples. After spending a night in prayer, according to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. But one thing I want to highlight about these men is that they were ordinary men. Jesus did not choose these men on the basis of their faith, on the basis of their skills or their talents. He did not choose them on the basis of their social status. He chose them because he wanted to. <coughs> ordinary men, ordinary people. Before we get into the message, let's, let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you again this morning, I ask God that you would just work in our hearts. Lord, that as we hear the story, and Mark is full of stories that apply to our hearts and our lives, miracle after miracle, <coughs> God, as we look at those things in the story today, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, even be willing to say, Lord, use me to accomplish your will. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, what I want to do, just for a little bit, and it's not going to be one of my longer messages, just in case you're wondering. Of course, I do say that they end up being longer sometimes. Someone said, you know what it means when a Baptist preacher takes his watch off and looks at it? Absolutely nothing. So I won't do that to you this morning. But this morning, I want to highlight these 12 men. What kind of men they were? What are they known as? And what they were willing to give up and sacrifice for God to use them. And let me just say in advance, God may not use you in the same way that he used these 12 men. He may do something far greater in your life. He may do something that you think is of lesser importance. But I want us to ask the question, how God might use me in the world that I live in. So I want to highlight who they were. First of all, I want to read the text and highlight who they were and then draw it to a conclusion. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, <coughs> it says that Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. 
excuse me, he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. As we go through this list, the first one is Simon, who he named Peter. Simon Peter. Let me give you several things about Simon Peter. First of all, he was a fisherman from Bethsaida, from Capernaum. As we said earlier from reading through the book of Mark, it was his place, or his mother-in-law's place, that Jesus would often take time to rest in. But probably one of the first of Jesus' disciples did missionary work amongst the Jews. He was the one who asked the meaning of the difficult saying in Matthew 15, 5, but was also the one who, what? Denied Jesus. He was energetic and ambitious and quick to speak. And oftentimes one who, though we could criticize him for those uh, moments of just blurting out, he was also the one that trusted Jesus and followed him. He was passionate until the end. But most likely during the time of Nero, Peter was sentenced to death by crucifixion. He requested that his head be turned toward the ground because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. Can you imagine just for a moment? Living your life, walking alongside Jesus, and let me just say there is a difference. I don't personally believe that there are apostles today. I don't believe that there is. I believe a disciple of Christ is someone who follows Jesus' life. They learn all they can from the Master. Apostles, the one differentiating difference is that apostles walked with Jesus, according to Scripture. But he was a, one of the first people that Jesus chose to use and called to follow him. But he didn't feel worthy to die in the same fashion as his Savior. And then we come to James, the son of Zebedee from Galilee, often called James the Greater or James the Elder. <coughs> he too was a fisherman by trade, along with Peter and John. He also was one of the sons of thunder. And according to scripture, he was one of the first, or history was the first martyr in the Bible slain by a sword, most likely. Sounds like a great idea to follow Jesus during his day, right? I mean, one crucified upside down, another one slain by a sword. Sign me up, right? <coughs> Aren't you glad that we live in a day of freedom? <coughs> Excuse me. Third one was James, the brother of James, also the son of Zebedee. He wrote five books of the Bible. He was the only apostle who did not die a martyr's death as he died of natural causes on the island of Patmos, which is present-day Turkey, after being exiled there by Emperor Domitian. Can you imagine spending the rest of your life exiled to an island? But that's okay. God used them there. God used him. Then there was Andrew. He was the brother of Peter and first apostle called by Jesus. Probably introduced Peter to the Lord. Crucified on an X-shaped cross. Can you imagine? Just think of it in your mind's eye just for a moment. Jesus and Peter, one foot over the other, hands spread out. But on an X-shaped cross, one arm up, other arm up, one leg down out at an angle, other leg down at an angle. 
what these guys were willing to endure to be used of Jesus. Then we come to Philip. He was the inquirer. He was also a fisherman from Bethsaida. He was the one who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8. He died having been hung. History says that Philip preached in Phrygia and died a martyr in Hierapolis, being hung. Then Bartholomew, Nathaniel, he was a man who, Scripture says, there was no guile found in his mouth. In fact, Scripture says, or history says, this was maybe the only one of the twelve that had any type of noble blood in his body, but yet despised his upbringing to follow Jesus. And history tells us that he was flayed alive by knives. Sounds exciting. Then there's Matthew, somebody that none of us would choose. I mean, this is the modern-day IRS only worse, as we saw, saw a few weeks ago. He's a publican, tax collector, one who would rip people off to get their money. And yet he forsook all to follow Jesus. But T too died a martyr in Ethiopia. Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin, was from Galilee. He was considered a melancholy, a doubter. You read the stories of what? Doubting Thomas. He said, if I can't see the hand, Mark, or the prince in the hands, I'm not going to believe. But God's word goes on to explain to us that he did see the marks. And Jesus said, blessed are those who believe, yet they don't see he was considered a doubter, but ministered primarily in Parthia, Persia, India, modern-day India. Was martyred in Madras near Mount St. Thomas in India, having been killed with a spear. <coughs> These men went all out to serve the Lord. James, the son of Alphaeus, called the Lesser, died having been sawed in pieces. I said, man, Pastor, that's a morbid message you're bringing this morning. It's terrible. I want us to think about it for a moment. None of us have had to go through that. Thaddeus. There's not much known about him. He's not mentioned much in Scripture. Not much known about him. And then Simon the Zealot. He's also from Galilee. Relatively little known as far as his personal ministry. And then there's Judas Iscariot, probably the most infamous one, known as the betrayer or traitor. <coughs> Assumed that he went out and hung himself. There you go. A dozen ordinary men filled with the power of God to go out and change the world. Let's read the text again. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted. Let's just stop there for a moment. Jesus summoned, he called out for those that he wanted. And they came to him, regardless of what they were doing. Do you think for a moment that there weren't those who gave up much to call? To follow the call. If any of you have read the book Radical by David Platt, you come to find out that there's 
a God, not of our own choosing, or not one of our own making, but a God who calls those to complete obedience. I was reading the book, and I was sharing some of it with somebody in our church, and they said, my God would never ask me to do that. And he was referring to the text of Scripture where he said, if I'm not one to forsake mother and father and brother and sister and forsake all to follow Jesus, he said, my God would never ask me to do that. Then that's a God of your own choosing, a God of your own making. Because our love for God in comparison to the love that we have for those in this world ought to be far greater. Amen? It ought to be far greater. But yet, think about how that's lived out practically in our lives. We have birthday parties and give gifts and presents to, and we have get-togethers and fellowships with the human perspective of love. What about the vertical perspective? What do we do for him? Let that sink in. Well, so Pastor, it's easier because we see them. We're around them. There's expectations, right? But what's God's expectation of us? It says, and they came to him. He appointed these 12. They also named apostles. And what did he appoint them to do? We see that in verse 14. First of all, to be with him. That's the first thing he says. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, first of all, to be with him. To be with him. I said, well, that was for the apostles. What about for me? I think God wants you to be with him. Number two, to send them out to preach. He sent them out with a message. And then number three, to have authority to drive out demons. Say, well, Pastor, that's above my pay grade. I don't know anything about that. And to be honest with you, I don't know a whole lot about it. But what I'm thinking I've been astounded with is, uh, as I've been reading through the book of Mark, is how many times Jesus cast out demons. Here's a thought that comes to my mind. We talked about it a little bit at men's Bible study. Is there a demonic world out there that we just don't pay any attention to? I think there is. I absolutely think there is. There is a world out there that we just, on our own merry way, and we just don't pay any attention to it. And yet Jesus was aware of it because every town and village he went to, part of his ministry was casting out demons. Okay, we're going to have a sign-up sheet, how to cast out a demon after the service. Sign your name up. We'll have that class. Just kidding. We won't have that class. But I also wonder, though, practically for you and I, if we would just but pray for discernment, to know when there is something interfering with our life, something that is hindering us from being fully obedient to God, something that is getting in the way of our obedience, if that God would just give us that discernment to know that we could deal with it. I don't think these three things have changed in our lives. Just as he called the the apostles to deal with these three things, I believe that we are called to do these three things, to be with him, to carry out the message, and to pray that God would have freedom to work. 
I wonder what God would do with a few more ordinary people who would let God work through them. Ordinary people. And let me just say this. I had this idea for a long time that ordinary just meant, well, maybe they weren't the most educated. And Scripture tells us that a few of them weren't very highly educated. But I learned something a few weeks back. I was over at a synagogue, and I talked to a Messianic Jew, and he shared with some of, several of us pastors in the area his salvation testimony. And it was as clear as day. And he really challenged us. And speaking of their way of doing service each and every week, and he took out the scrolls. And as he took out the scroll, this is monster scrolling. It is well over 200 years old. And he unrolled it. And he said, in our synagogue, as it is tradition in most Jewish synagogues, is you read through the first five books at least once a year, out loud publicly. And as he took them out of this big cabinet and laid them down, took both arms around the scrolls. And the, the handles on them were about this tall. And one side was wrapped up all the way and is really thick and tight and big. And the other side was just barely starting to be rolled up because as they would read more, they'd let a little bit out and then they'd roll up a little bit up on the other side. <coughs> he said, can you imagine preaching and saying, hey, turn your Bible to such and such? Hold on, it's going to take me about 20 minutes. <laughs> but you see, here's something I want you to understand. We have the Bible. We have this. And it's not in the form of monster big scrolls. Can you imagine going on a trip? Walking from town to town, carrying, well, hold on, i got to get my backpack ready so I can get my scrolls in them. They didn't do that. The scrolls, for the most part, stayed in their dwellings or in the synagogues. But let me ask this question. If God chose 12 ordinary men and they carried on the gospel message and they knew the word and they did, how did they get it from place to place to place if they weren't carrying these monster scrolls around? You know how it got from place to place to place? Any idea? They memorized it. They knew it. So let me ask you this question. How dumb were these ordinary men? I don't think they were that dumb. I don't think they were that unlearned. I don't think that they were just men who just happened to have this one memorized candy message that they took with them everywhere they went. They were men who learned the word. And if they had nothing else, they took the word with them in their minds. Can you imagine how many of us grew up memorizing scripture as a kid? Man, all of us, a lot of us. Now all of a sudden we graduate, and I don't have the assignment anymore. I remember growing up in my Christian school, every Monday morning, five verses. I still, I still know a lot of them. Why? Because I was forced to memorize them. I say forced. But we practiced them and read through them and memorized them. 
week after week after week after week after week. And all of a sudden you graduate. You're in college, doing your assignments. Life happens, and we put memorization aside. What were to happen to you and I if God were to say, hey, I want you to go to the Middle East and spread the news. And you get stopped at the airport and border control. And they finally got a Bible in your book bag. And you carry on. And they say, you can't take that in. You have no electronic devices. How will you teach the word? If it's not here. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Do we know it? These dozen ordinary men, let God use them. And can I just say it's not about talents or abilities. You've heard me say this a hundred times in the last seven years. One of my favorite verses I'm going to read it very quickly. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. <clears throat> you know what that take, does for me? It takes the pressure off. My brother's not hopefully listening today. Hopefully he's in his church service. But my brother was perfect. <laughs> he still is. My brother was good at everything. It's not fair, not right. Just He was the guy that would take 21 credits every semester, work 25 hours a week, play sports, and still carry a 4.0. Those people need shot. Just saying. And as you know about me, I wear jeans everywhere I go. My brother dresses up everywhere he goes. I always followed the perfect brother everywhere I went. So what was ingrained in my mind of my own doing was that I had to be good at stuff. Because my brother was the perfect athlete. He was the lucky one. Everything went perfect for him most of the time. So I began to think in my own mind that if I could just get better at this, do this a little bit better, learn a little bit more of that, I could be like him. And all of a sudden one day I'm studying Second Chronicles. And God just really opened this up to me. God's eyes are roaming through the whole earth to do one thing. To show himself strong through that person who's devoted to him. See, it really has nothing to do with that person. Literally nothing to do with that person other than one thing. He's committed. There's not a one of you in this congregation this morning that has to be talented, that has to have skills, that has to be able to sing well or speak well or have be really gifted in sports or athleticism or be really I mean, book smart and academic. Nothing wrong with any of those things. 
If God has blessed you, wonderful. But it's not about that or the lack thereof. It's about your heart and commitment to follow Jesus. And he says, if you'll let me, I'll show myself strong through you. That takes the pressure off, folks. That takes a huge pressure off. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be great. Because God's going to work through me. That's what I see in the disciples. That's what I see in those 12 men. I see men who say, God says, follow me. Okay. What do I got to lose? I mean, if I stay here, I get my hands full of stinky fish all day long. Let's go. They were excited to follow. And they weren't perfect, as we well know. Psalm 37, 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. Just trust Him. What is it that God wants to do in your life? Can you remember the story of Samuel? Just for a moment. I hear this voice. Did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Samuel. Gets up and runs out again. Hey, why are you calling me? I didn't call you, Samuel. Runs out again. And there's enough wisdom to understand. He says, if you hear your voice being called again, say, speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. And he realizes God calling him. He didn't have to be great. He didn't have to be awesome. He didn't have to know everything. What he had to do was say, Lord, speak. I hear, and I'm willing to follow. What is it that God wants to do through you? I think the obvious things are the same thing as the disciples, the, the 12 that he called, the apostles, to be with him, to carry out the message, to have discernment, to know how God wants to work, and maybe not casting out demons, but his work in general. But what does God want to do with your life? If you'll let him. I hear stories of what goes on around me. I get excited about it. Anybody get excited about what we heard last week? Isn't that awesome? I mean, in one year, what God did in just a span of one year, phenomenal. Blows your mind. How many of us have heard some pretty incredible stories of what God's doing in other places? Raise your hand. Yeah, most of us. But do you think it could compare as if God did it here? What would be better? Here. Because you'd be a part of it. I want God to do something great here. I don't want to read about it in the stories of other people's lives and say, well, good for them. They must have be closer to God than we are. No, that's not the idea. That's not the attitude. But to say, God, what do you want to do here that we could be a part of if we would be willing to let him use us? What step of faith does God want you to take? What step of obedience does God want you to make to see his kingdom move forward? Pastor Hubert left us with a message. What's one or two or three things that you could pray for? To say, God, would you do this to help us take another step?
to impact your kingdom? What are, what are a couple things that we could do that God would use to impact our kingdom, his kingdom for himself? Are we willing to do that? I hope that we are. I hope that we are. That we would trust him for great things because he wants to use us. I believe that. Amen? It gets back to last week or two weeks ago message. You still excited? Still have some ambition to let God use you and do something great through you? And let me just say, he can do whatever he wants. I have no box to say, God, you have to do this, this, and this. I, I, what he wants to write in the check boxes, that's up to him, right? Whatever he wants to do. But am I willing to let him to use me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly 